Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. Welcome back to another episode of the Job Shop Show. Jay Jacobs here, and today we will be talking with Damien Forsyth of Impact Manufacturing Group in California. Good to have you on the show today, Damien. Thank you, Jay. Happy to be here. Yeah, we were chatting a bit before the show, and one thing that struck me was your shop's five-axis capability. Most shops don't have five-axis equipment or the ability to program five-axis parts. So this led into you sharing some of your background on how you got into machining and to the point where you have your own shop today and doing things that even larger shops aren't doing. So I thought we'd start there. How did you first get into machining? Well, it's a funny story. I was sitting in um, my high school uh, welding shop class, and uh, my welding teacher came up, and he asked me uh, if I wanted a job. I said, sure. He handed me a piece of paper, said, be at this address tomorrow at 4 p.m. What I found out was that uh, he was part of a small group of the Chamber of Commerce, and a couple business owners had gotten together, and everyone asked if they needed any positions filled through various local businesses. And uh, luckily enough for me, there was a machine shop that uh, was trying to fill an entry-level spot. So he thought of me, recommended the job. I went there the next day, got hired. So were you a senior in high school at the time? I was, yes. It was about a month before graduation. Okay. And so did they get to know you in the month before graduation and then just were comfortable hiring you after you graduated? How did that work out? So um, it was about a two-hour interview, and they seemed very impressed with me, and they were willing to wait until I graduated. So I accepted the job, and uh, my first day was literally the Monday after graduation. I showed up, and they had everything ready to go. Okay. And you had taken some welding, but machining was new. So how did they... How did they train you? How did they get you up to speed? So I came in as I ran the saw and I deburred parts. And Mm -hmm. so it was a learn as you go. They -hmm. showed me the saw. They showed me where, how you set the stop, start button, stop button, all the basic safety stuff and uh, taught me how to read a print. So I knew how long to cut the material, showed me what different mixtures to run in the deburred tumblers. And uh, it just kind of went from there. I was shadowed for about maybe three or four days with one of the experienced guys. And uh, after that, they just let me go. How large a shop was it? 
Uh, it was about 12 people. It was actually an OEM that did scientific uh, measuring devices for universities and colleges. So uh, this was a captive uh, shop. It was a captive shop, yeah. And what year was this? Uh, this would be 1994. Great. Okay. And you, I understand, learned virtual Gibbs cam software during your lunch hour? I did. So um, I saw what they had uh, three foot all CNCs in there and um, I think a more CD turning center. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was enamored by the fact that these, what I thought was a giant robot was making parts and, and how it would change tools and how a little piece of material that I cut would go in there and come out all done. It was pretty, pretty cool to see. So, the and, and that was your first exposure to CAM software. It was. I saw um, in the office the uh, shop foreman. They, this guy would go in there and start drawing these little shapes and clicking on things. And, and I got curious, and I you know wanted to know more about it. And uh, they allowed me to go in there on my lunch hour and uh, flip through all the books. And uh, so every day I ate my lunch and. Uh, taught myself how to program using uh, virtual gifts, which at the time was, was kind of a, a newer uh, approach to cam systems. It was kind of like a leading software at, at that time. Gotcha. And did that lead to you programming parts there and advancing in that shop? Um, no, it did not. But as, and this is over the course of, of, of a while when I was there, as I was learning it, they saw how well I was doing on everything else, and they actually sponsored me into an apprenticeship program, which basically they would pay for half of like my toolbox, calipers, mics, all that stuff, and I paid for the other half as long as I worked there a certain, you know, I think it was six months or something like that. It wasn't a very long time, but I thought it was a great opportunity to, you know, get my own set of tools and they started training me on manual lays and manual mills. Sure. And, uh, and it just kind of grew from there. It just, I kept excelling and they kept seeing it and uh, just kept moving up. And how long did you stay there and what prompted you to leave? I believe I was there probably 18 months. And uh, the only reason I left, I, I loved the guys I was working with and, and they paid me good, but I was lacking the ability to understand all the code that I was writing on uh, on the virtual Gibbs. I mean, it spits out all the G code, but mm-hmm. I didn't know what any of it was. And so as I tried to learn more about the G code, um, I decided I should learn the program by hand. And I found an opportunity that, and people might say I, I regressed, but it was one of the best things I ever did was taking another job where I'd get to set up an actual CNC mill and write all the programs by hand. So when you say write the programs by hand, do you mean program at the machining center? Right at the control, yes, sir. Okay. And which, what type of machining centers were those? Cause uh, they were Matsuris. Uh, one was an RA2 power changer. The other one was an MX760. So they had their, they had their own programming code or system specifically for that machine tool? Uh, it was on a Fanuc, I think, at 11M, Fun- if I remember okay. right. So it was standard G-code for, for most of the industry. So you were actually 
programming the G-code. Yeah. Yeah, so we were given prints, and, you know, you got to backfigure every inside corner radius, where's the center of it, and, and write all that stuff by hand. And it's, it's, a, it's a fulfilling process, to be honest with you. It's, it's a lot of math, a lot of thinking things all the way through. Um, you know, before I was exposed to the world we live in now, you know, with RTCP and G68.2 and all that stuff, but it was, it was a fun experience, and I learned a lot. Yeah, that's that's like learning to program computers at the machine level. So, I agree. I agree. It's very similar. And how long were you at that company for? Uh, I was there for over two years. And what skill sets did you feel you really acquired while you were there beyond uh, that programming? Definitely learning feeds and speeds, uh, you know, for carbide, high speed, uh, learning what actually drives the machine, Mm -hmm. how to write a program by hand. You're telling the machine to do exactly what you want. Therefore, it it always saves a little bit of cycle time, whereas most today's cam systems have posts set up that are pretty safe. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're not quite as efficient as they could be. over time, you can always get that with, with the newer CAM systems. But writing a, a program by hand is usually, I would say, 10% quicker on cycle time, if I had to take a guess on it. Did you ever crash a machine? Yeah, my first day. <laughs> my first day. And, and, and it's a funny story because I thought I was going to get fired because I, I, it was a half-inch carbide end mill. And this is, you know, a smaller um, – it's a larger company, but uh, – but the owner was very involved. And so to get a tool, you had to go ask him for it. And he would pull it out of his drawer, like, you know, a half inch carbide in mill. And, uh, I wrote my first program and, uh, I dry ran it over the top and, you know, I felt pretty safe about it. So I put the tool in and I jogged down to take an offset and I smacked, I didn't smack it, but I jogged down in Z uh, a little bit too fast and it uh, broke a chip on the, on one of the flutes. <laughs> and so I had to go right back in and ask him for one again. And I got a look like, did you really just do that? And um, I didn't think much of it, but I grabbed that other end mill, went out there, part came out perfect. And, uh, you know, we ended up being great friends working together. So it worked out well, but there's always that, you know, that, those first couple of times when you're feeling somebody out. And it was a terrible mistake I made, but it happens. School of hard knocks. Yeah, it really is part of, part of learning. So what did you do next? Um, so as far as uh, my next job after that, mm-hmm. I uh, found a, a job in the paper that was closer to my house. It would have saved me about 45-minute commute each way. And uh, I showed up there claiming that I knew you know, virtual divs, been programming by hand for almost two years, mm-hmm. you know, put any part in front of me and I'll make it. And uh, they called me out on it. They hired me and had me program a pretty complex uh, job the first day. It was, uh, you're familiar with the Luma bronze material? No. It's an oil impregnated. Uh, it's it's not real difficult to cut, but to get a good surface finish on it is, is kind of difficult because of the little pockets of oil that are throughout it. 
Okay. Is it so gummy? I sit down, it program gummy? this part. Yeah, it, it is gummy, and it's very porous. Mm-hmm. And it required a 32 surface finish, which I didn't think anything of until uh, I started cutting it. And I take it into QC, and they run the, the surface uh, contraption thing on it, and they say, oh, no, that's 48. So I sat there for about three hours trying to – I tried to hone in the tip of the inserts, tried everything I could think of. And uh, then the boss man comes by and said, how's it going? I said, great. And he said, you know, we only quoted this to be about a two-hour setup. And, you know, you've been on it probably four hours. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm fighting this, this surface finish. Everything else is great. And he says, all right, have you tried spinning it backwards on a piece of steel for a couple seconds and just barely kiss it? And I said, no, I've never thought about it. So he helps me uh, turn the spindle on backwards. We jog it down on a piece of stainless, let it almost like rub there for a second. And sure, it's poop. Uh, 32 finish came out, dead nuts. So that slight tweak to the cutting tool was able to change the characteristic of the surface finish? Correct. Um, it has to do with the way that edge wears. I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on it. I'm familiar with, with honing an insert. and But mm-hmm. back then, I, I didn't know anything about it. And he uh, helped me out. And the uh, job went great. Interesting. Yeah. So you actually wanted a duller tool than a sharper tool, sounds like. Correct. That's exactly what the process was. So, how long were you with this company? I was with, uh, it was, the shop was called Rockland Precision Machine. I was there, I want to say seven years. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the best decision I ever made. It was a group of guys and a great owner that, that everyone expected the best out of everyone. And I saw a lot of guys come in and make it half a day. Some guys made it a week. I mean, I always thought I was going to get fired for the first maybe three years I worked there because everyone was so good and no one made mistakes. I mean, obviously everyone makes mistakes, but they were were far and few between. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just like the other companies I worked for. I started doing better and better, taking on more and more. You know, all of a sudden the programmer had to leave for two weeks because his wife and him had a a child. Mm -hmm. Uh, I got thrown into the programmer seat for for a solid two weeks. And then after he came back, I stayed there another two weeks. So I spent almost a month uh, programming for a couple of A55 horizontal cells and maybe six or seven verticals. And um, it's also where I, I learned horizontals. Um, I got uh, basically, I was given my own uh, Matsura horizontal and a Haas vertical, and they labeled me the R&D department. So okay. anything that was new came straight to me. And it was my job to just get it done, get it out the door. So in terms of programming verticals versus horizontals and approaches, what are some of the differences that you've noticed and that you take into account? Uh, the biggest differences I see is on a large cavity. Um, a horizontal obviously is going to clear chips better when you're roughing and finishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're able to hit, you know, at least three sides of the part in one shot versus on a vertical. You're forced to do it one one side at a time. Mm-hmm. There's no differences, but there's a lot of benefits to the fourth axis. 
Um, I, I love horizontals. They're probably my second favorite system I've ever worked on. Um, I have a passion for it, especially most horizontals are able to hold a lot more tools, reducing right. customers. You know, they, they want, they need stuff fast. And if mm-hmm. you're able to have 200 tools in there that are resident, I mean, that's 90% of your programming and, and setup right there. Right. Huh. So what, what happened at the end there? Um, at the end there, we got purchased by a giant uh, conglomerate called Precision Components Group. Um, there was a couple shops, one kind of famous called S&S. Uh, Mike Suslin owned that one. Uh, Fred Renner owned RPMI, where I worked. And we all got snatched up by this big conglomerate within maybe three months of each other. And uh, they closed the doors on our facility and shipped everything down to the Bay Area where uh, they were putting everything under one, one roof. Mm-hmm. Um, I was selected to be one of the ones to uh, go down and help with the uh, transfer of all the, all the RPMI work to the new company. They took all of our machines, all of our tooling, and everything down there. So it's basically everyone getting together, familiarizing with different parts, different customers, getting on the same page, how we store programs what our setup sheets looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, once we all that sorted up, things, things started to you know ramp up and they were busy making parts. So did you move to the Bay Area yourself or was this temporary? It was temporary. Um, they offered me, I think it was 12 grand to go down there for six months plus a giant raise. They gave me like an extra 10 bucks an hour. They put us up in hotel rooms, gave us uh, $400 a week for food. Mm-hmm. Um, treated us just great. It, it was a it was a fun experience. So I, I would head down Monday morning at three a.m. and then blast out of there Friday at maybe noon, and I make it back up to my house. And you're in the Sacramento area, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm just east of Sacramento. I live up in the foothills, kind of like an open ranch mm-hmm. kind of area. Yeah. Okay. So after that ended, what did you do next? Well, I started my first machine shop right after that. I took that money. That was a down payment on a, on a Haas VF4. Got me into a building, got me a compressor and a CMM, mm-hmm. and I was ready to take over the world. Did you? No. No, I didn't. Um, you know, learning, being a machinist and being a machine shop owner are two vastly different things. Um, what I've learned is, Anyone can buy a machine. Not everyone can make parts. A few people can get the work and the customers and get the right people to make the parts all together. Um, so it, it was a learning curve. Um, I didn't do bad, but you know, I didn't get rich either. I think a lot of it had to do with it just wasn't the right time in, in my life and my at the time girlfriend's life. Mm-hmm. to have a shop that required, you know, 16 hours a day, seven days a week, whatever it took to get off the ground. So the shop so was, was very, the shop was just you at that time. You were, yeah. you were doing yeah, everything. Me. Yeah. And, and this is back in the day when, when, uh, you know, a PO came across on the facts. So it was an exciting sound to hear the facts all of a sudden start printing something out. You get all excited and run back from the machine and see what order you got. Um, right. It was fun. Uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. You know, it, it was another learning experience. Um, mm-hmm. 
I, I did fairly well uh, getting some work online, getting uh, networking from previous employers. Um, so I stayed busy, but it seemed like every job that came through the door, I needed a different thread gauge. I needed a different tap. And the, the actual cost of getting up to be able to be, be um, you know, up and running was a lot larger than what I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. It's not as simple as a machine in a building, that's for sure. The a lot of similarities. I before I started Rapid, I had started a tried to start a machining business for quick turn plastic parts. I called it Plasticam, and it also uh, didn't work out. It my wife just before the machining center was to be delivered found out that she was pregnant with our first child and the plan had been for me to go into that business, make it work. And then eventually we would start the family. And in the meantime, she would have the health insurance and an income to support us. And that basically went out the window. So it's uh, yeah, life has its way of uh, of checks and balances. That's for sure. Um, you can't foresee everything. And then, so uh, I was kind of in the same boat where, you know, the home life wasn't exact for for the right time and the right business. And I think that put a lot of stress into our lives. Mm-hmm. And um, so I ended up closing the shop. Luckily, I was able to sell it. Um, basically. Uh, they bought the machine as long as I would go with them to uh, another shop that was kind of an upstart, maybe another 60 minute drive from, from my current location. So we uprooted everything, put it all in their building. I went over there and um, things were okay. Um, They definitely had a different philosophy on, on how a shop should run. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was a lot of differences between, between how, how I foresaw things and then how they wanted them done. And a lot of that wasn't spoken up front. And so I think that was a big mistake on my part is not asking enough questions like, how is this really going to work? What do you expect out of me? Learning more about them on how they want to do things and where they saw themselves in the future. They were very conservative. Um, you know, they, they quoted things really high. They, they weren't awarded a lot of jobs, but they didn't want those. They only wanted the big winners. And mm-hmm. everything was was really like calculated down to the penny whereas i was more of a you need that part in two days all right i can do it for 500 bucks you know i order some material and there's a part and they, they they had a different approach on on how things should work so that didn't work out and um i reached out to one of my old bosses and he was running another machine shop pretty close to where i live and uh i went there took over the the horizontal cell. It was uh, two Hitachi CDs with, I think. Uh, so back three, back to the horizontals, huh? Yeah, back to the horizontals, where I always seem to gravitate to. Um, and that might just be a mindset thing, like like you discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. But as long as you're able to visualize the whole process, how many parts can I put on a rail fixture? You know, what's the best way to maximize lights out machining, reduce cost? What kind of tool can I use to? to make this part 10% faster, those things, those are the things that always drove me, always pushed me, you know, sometimes kept me up at night. Maybe it's just the way I'm wired. I don't know, but. Well, let me, let me, let me stop you here for a second, Damien. Yeah. So 
you are obviously a self-starter and I know with your current shop, you have a lot of advanced technology. How do you learn? How do you find out about the newest advances? Do you, is it the blogs you subscribe to? Do you read magazines? Do you go to shows? What's your process for acquiring knowledge? Uh, my biggest one is the individual local reps for the tool salesman. They want to sell you something. And I always say I have an open door policy. If you got something that's better than what I have right now, mm-hmm. and they always do, you know, the guaranteed trial offer. They're like, swap this out for that. Run it at this. And if it works, then, you know, everyone wins. I'm buying their tools. My parts are faster. And is that beyond tooling? Is that the same thing for machining centers, the fixturing, measurement equipment, all those sorts of? I think those are all broken into different categories, more of the high-tech stuff. You know, I, I find a lot of it on, on forums. Maybe I used to be real big on the math uh, camp when, when I yep. learned that. And uh, learning from other people, uh, you know, um, people always have problems. People always have solutions and listening to others and learning from others has always pushed me in the right direction. So how do you set yourself up for those conversations? Usually it's as simple as, as just asking, never be afraid to ask. You know, I I think that's one of my best, best traits is, is Mm -hmm. I don't know everything. I don't, I want to learn everything, but I know that's not possible. So what I try and do is just be better every day. My goal is just be better. Don't be great. Don't hit a home run. Just be better. And that kind of keeps pushing me to maybe do a little bit of research on a new cutter or maybe a new fixture. Or maybe I saw something on the internet that said, oh, I never thought about holding a part that way. That's a great idea. And I'm always willing to try it. Do you have a group of people in the machining industry locally who you get together informally once in a while have a beer or really interested in how the transfer of knowledge is occurring at the job shop level. Yeah. So a a great example of that is the local machine uh, tool reseller out here is a Selway Mm -hmm. and they host a, uh, I think it's called a Wednesday night, you know, meet and greet. And it's all guys, shop owners, shop foremans, people that, you know, are just set up guys, people that want to be a setup guy. It's a whole group of people. They provide pizza and a bucket of beer. Everyone gets together and everyone starts chatting. Now, the one thing I've noticed is is people don't like to give away trade secrets. And when you look sure. at it like it's a secret, it makes it seem like it's, you know, taboo. But I've always been of the mindset that if shops worked together instead of against each other, everyone would be better off. I'm sure a lot of people disagree on that, but it, it's my personal opinion that from the people I've asked and they've shared things with me and I share them with other people. And if everyone's doing better then everyone wins. So those groups where you get the people that are actually making the parts together, that's usually like the brain brain cloud aspect of it where, where people start mm-hmm. throwing out ideas. It's a great way to learn and, and network and meet and talk. Well, I like the fact that you said that it's not just the owners, it's the 
machinists and set up people and sounds like people who are wanting to upgrade their skills that may not be. So the fact that they make that open and there's the mingling of the different skill levels is a great service that they're providing. Yeah, it is. And, And it's not catered to just the owners who might buy a machine. It's more set up for everyone that wants to be a part of it. And the honest truth is, yeah, there's machine shops and there's owners, but without the guys on the floor, there is no machine shop and there is no owner. Correct. Correct. So how did you get into the Mastercam software? Were you still using the Gibbs at the horizontal shop? No, they actually had Mastercam there. I'd never used it. And um, basically my job was just to make sure parts got set up on the cells and ran lights out. But again, when I ate my lunch, I would trot on up to the programming uh, room, which was upstairs. And on my lunch hour, I taught myself Master Jam. Hmm. And uh, next thing you know, we had a couple parts on the horizontal that were struggling. I threw out some suggestions and uh, the shop foreman said, well, I trust you. Why don't you reprogram it? I reprogrammed it, cut the cycle time by 42%. And uh, it was a very profitable job for you. And I redesigned the fixtures. Mm-hmm. They were running them on a on a single um, fixture in the center of a pallet, so they could just hit all the sides. But there was only two sides that need to be hit, so I made a fixture that kind of held them in a semicircle, like a half moon. Mm-hmm. And so then we wow. could load eight of them on there at a time, and uh, that got us another four hours of free runtime at night. You know, the owner caught wind of that. Next thing you know, I was programming almost everything that went to that cell. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah. And you, from there, you went to Kratos Defense? I did. So at that point, I thought I was a fancy Mastercam programmer, and I saw an ad on Craigslist. And at this time, this was more, this decision was driven. Um, I really wanted to buy a house. I think I was 25, 26 at the time. No, I was probably 28. Yeah, and you know it's time to you know you know get a house and be mm-hmm. uh, you know a grown up so to speak, mm-hmm. and uh, and this this job offered from what I read on it just a lot of stability, a better four hundred one, better benefits, um, and I really liked what they were doing. It was state of the art. Uh, it was a drone manufacturer. They built uh, military uh, drones for targets, and now they're even doing unmanned um, you know warfare systems, and it just really intrigued me. Like how. I've been making these parts that, you know, are pretty much prismatic for, you know, most of my life, but right. what's all this surfacing and waving and that, how is that even possible? So I applied for it and, uh, and it's funny. They, they liked me. Um, and they said, well, you know, we'll think about it. They brought me back in for a second interview, which I've never had. I've never not gotten a job on the first interview. So I didn't think I got the job. And when they called me back, they brought me in with more of the uh, high-level management people. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting around, and we talked for a good 45 minutes. And at the end of it, they said, well, do you have anything you'd like to add? And uh, excuse my language, but I said, I like to make cool shit. And they said, well, we like to make cool shit around here, too. <laughs> and uh, that's how that one went. And uh, the story of my life, you know. Swim and or tread water till you can swim. I got thrown these crazy lamination tools. You know, I've never seen a build that was 1,200 pounds before. 
So it's a lot of pressure to not make a mistake. Yeah. And, uh, luckily, the, the programmers I was working with were awesome. Showed me all these little secrets. Dude, I knew the basics of MasterCam, but mm-hmm. I didn't know all the powerful stuff that you could do with it. And uh, ended up working with a great bunch of guys. And it, it was a real fun experience. The So is that where you learned to program with 5-axis? It was. And um, we actually had a little bit of difficulty with our five-axis programming uh, using MasterCam. I think it was MasterCam X during the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had made my way up to the programming supervisor. So I was programming maybe half the day and then, you know, more management stuff the other half. And uh, I reached out to a friend about a question in MasterCam. And I hadn't talked to him for about a year or two. He replied back with, uh, man, I can't help you. I'm using Siemens NX now. And I said, well, what's that? So I did a little bit of research, and uh, I was pretty blown away at, at how simple it was and how powerful it was at the same time. So I proposed to uh, my boss that if we were to change cam systems, um, you know, we, we could cut down our programming times by a good 20%, uh, also reduce some cycle times, and more importantly, eliminate errors. So uh, after about three months, we did an ROI on it. We got an eval license. I learned it by myself, and uh, as I usually do. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we had a little, you know, head-to-head competition. Uh, boss man brought out the same part to both of us. He programmed it in MasterCam. I programmed it in X. Um, it took him about four hours. It took me just over three um, my setup sheets were, were, they felt were superior. Theirs were lacking. And then the cycle time was about 15% less on the NX side. And uh, it, it, it really changed their future, you know, going forward with, with, look, we're able to do this, this, and this. And now we still have time to do that. You know, so I mean, so how, what drove but, the reduction in cycle time, the difference? Um, the ability to to the best way to put it is not wasting any time cutting air. Mm-hmm. NX is so model driven. Where at the time MasterCam, you know, you can throw a model in there and you can use it, but the NX side of it, it always knows where your tool is, where it can wrap it to, how it can get around a part. Whereas in MasterCam, there's a lot of manual entry of clearance flames. Let me wrap it up to this. Then I wanted to wrap it down to that. NX handles all that automatically. So that was almost a freebie of reducing the cycle times just in that aspect. And what year was this when you did the head-to-head? I'm going to say 2010, roughly, that era, 2012 maybe. And you've been an NX guy since then? Yes, sir. NX knows the depth of the model whole. You know, there's no entry for that. Uh, it saves a lot of steps. And then we also use, um, you know, G-code simulation. That was, that was a big plus for us, um, being able to actually simulate the G-code and not the NCI file. So that's right in the NX program? It is, yeah. It, it's an extra license, but it is integrated. So I don't have to pull all these things out into another system to try and uh, simulate them that way. I have used Vericut, and I love it. I think Vericut's the best package out there. 
But for us, when you're doing one-offs, um, the NX never failed us on our simulations. It showed us exactly what the machine was going to do. Well, the integration and not, not having to take extra steps is a huge plus. So Agreed. What got you to say, I want to go out and start Impact Manufacturing Group? There was really nothing. It was just, I, I just had a feeling of, you know, maybe it's time for a change. I kind of had some regrets on how, how my first shop ended. I felt I could have done a better job. Mm-hmm. I felt I had learned and grown as a person, as a machinist. Um, I was at a very great spot in life. Um, I, m- I met a girl and we were, gonna, we just got married. Uh, life was great. And kind of your situation, like you mentioned, um, my wife um, had a very good job, had the benefits, had everything that, you know, I could go take a loss for a couple of years and, and try this thing the right way instead of trying to make it, you know, in 90 days, you know, let's right. give it two years. Right. And I think that's a big difference. Yes. Yes. So you started impact manufacturing in 2013? 2013, yes, sir. And at first that was a part-time gig? It was. It was a part-time thing. And, um, you know, we got the machine, we got the building. Uh, We didn't have any work, but I, I knew a lot of people. I made some phone calls. And uh, some other shops were offloading, you know, the one-off stuff that, that a big shop doesn't always want to deal with. Mm-hmm. And that's my background is, is R&D one-off. I love it. There's nothing better than taking, you know, you get a, a model and a print and you make a part in a day and you only got one shot at it and it comes out right. I mean, it's a very rewarding feeling. And uh, it's also fun. It breaks up the day. Um, I remember the days of the horizontals. And uh, lots of lots of being an operator and inspecting parts all day. Mm-hmm. And that was a great experience, but I really seem to gravitate towards the one-offs. So when you started Impact Manufacturing, did you have any core ideas or philosophies on how you wanted the shop to run? It sounds like the one-offs are what you gravitate to, but... Is there anything else that you had in the back of your mind, whether you formally or informally said, this is what we're going to do? Yeah. So I put a lot of thought into opening this shop. I took every lesson learned from everything I'd ever done, everything anyone had ever told me. And I just sat down one night and started writing almost like a procedure. What would a day-to-day life look like in part flow? So obviously we got to cut the material. Uh, we have to, uh, you know, inspect the material. We got to program it. We got to machine it, inspect it again, get it plated, inspect it again, ship to the customer. And I started thinking, what are the things I've learned in my life that reduces the time? And the number one thing I've ever done to reduce time is modular fixture. Huh. So we did some research on a company called Lang Technovision. Uh, I believe they're they're a Germany a German company. Um, they have a system that is just flawless when it comes to sharing in between machines inspection. The part never has to come uh, undone. It's always restrained onto your fixture. It can go onto a lathe. 
It can go anywhere you want. And that's what we wanted to be. We want to be vertically integrated to where a part could travel either path and not lose time. We didn't want to spend time building fixtures. We wanted to make parts and we wanted to make them fast. And that was one of the biggest and best decisions I ever made was going with a modular system for the whole shop. So if I understand this correctly, because we did not use a modular system at Rapid, you put your stock in a Lang fixture and you will put it in the mill, say it, it, that, that is a, where you're clamping it into initially is a subset of a system. So you're, you're pulling it in and out and there's easy locating features and uh, locking mechanisms. Exactly. Sorry, I, I spoke that like everyone knows what it is. Uh, let me let me go a little bit back. Sure. So the Lang system, it, it's modular as far as there's six to seven different size vices. And I think their biggest vice is only six inches wide. They're super low profile. They all have mounting studs on the bottom. When you think of like pull studs on the back of a, of a Cat 40 tool holder, mm-hmm. those drop into precision bores. And then there's a hydraulic screw that you turn and a cam leverages and locks them in. So to change a part or a vice, it probably takes about 15 seconds. Um, But the benefit is all of our machines have that pattern of subplate on the fourth or on the table or like on our fifth. Right. That's all covered with those. And what's great is they're a known spacing apart. So let's say you have a part that's 20 inches long. You know exactly where the vice will go on the left and the right because they're going to be mounted into those bores you know your span in between them when it comes into the software we have all that pre-modeled up so we don't waste any time uh creating fixtures or or layups or how this might work we know how we're going to hold it just as soon as we see it and you started that from day one i did and it was expensive and the Uh. honest truth is we didn't have a lot of money and i i bought a lot of stuff on ebay uh, I would check Craigslist. Uh, once I saw the value in it, I just knew we had to have it, and I did everything I could to get it. Yeah, I was going to ask you what your investment was because I can imagine that is a pretty expensive system. Not not that it's not worth it, but particularly for a startup shop, it's an investment. It, it is. Um, I would say if we had to guess, we probably have seventy-five to eighty-five grand in, in laying fixture work holding devices in the shop. But it saves time and improves accuracy. So yeah, when you look at the ROI on it, it's it's a no-brainer because we can run a part on our five axis, unbuckle it. We have a lane plate on our CMM. It can check the whole part. If we find one discrepancy. Undo it. It goes right back in where it was within a tenth or two. You know, we can make an adjustment. Maybe it was a cutter comp. Maybe it was a tool length. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're back in business. And we don't have to make that second part. Making the second part when they only need one doubles your cost. Yes. So if you look at it that way, if I can just make sure that first part is right, I'm saving the customer money every time, which is making them happy. They give me more work. I make more money. It's, it's better for everybody. Went all the way around. That's right. On their website, I checked out Lang before our conversation, and they call this zero 
point clamping? What, what do they mean by zero point? Uh, I think that's just a term they throw out, but it might have to do with the tolerance of how they locate. It's, it's amazing how, how they locate so accurately. And they have a whole system to where, let's say we, we put on our, one of our VF4s has eight of the plates on it. They actually have a gauge that they'll loan you for a week that is precision ground to make sure all those plates are exactly spaced when you tighten them down. Hmm. It's fascinating how much thought they put into it. And I've noticed that there's other companies coming out with very similar stuff, and I'm sure it's great too. But Lang has treated us right from day one. And uh, I usually stick with something until it does me wrong. So right now we are, we're team Lang, that's for sure. Gotcha. You offer five axis machining. We do. And that's unusual for a one-off shop or a shop that does prototypes and or quick turn. When do you go to a five axis versus your three axis or four axis? What's, what's the driver there? The honest truth is our philosophy is probably different than, than most. It is cheaper, better, faster for us to do a simple part on a five axis mill and have a three axis only dedicated to taking the backside, you know, whatever we were using to hold the part with. Mm-hmm. That's all, that's all our verticals do is take off the backside deeper. Um, we run everything on the five. The reason we're able to do that is because we have a vertically integrated system from the programming to the fixtures, to the solid models, to the G code simulation, to our resident tools that we leave in there to do, you know, and that's all depending on customer, but our customer base, we have a good set of tools that covers 80% of their parts. Hmm. I'm thinking back at rapid and we had some trunnion tables, which I, called the poor man's five axis they are i brand those too yeah i'm familiar. Yeah. yeah and but i would always be pushing back against my salespeople because they would want to go out and say oh we we offer five axis machining and i would say no we do three axis machining with trunnion tables and we just don't take the part off as often which gives you better tolerances and that was always a that was always a, a yin and yang of with the sales team there. So I definitely understand your philosophy of machining as many surfaces as possible at once without having to refixture. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's just it's simple that you know the less times you touch a part, you know, the cheaper it is going to be to make. And mm-hmm. I, I have to stress that the way technology has evolved, it is no more difficult to program a five axis than it is a three axis. I mean, and why is that? It's the way the software has, has come to, to life. It's the way the machine tools with dynamic work fixture offsets to where back when you ran those trunnion things, you probably had to know center line of rotation. And you probably mm-hmm. had to program that part out in space. And then it would run around and twist and do its cool things. And then you'd wonder why it holds a little bit off. And you'd find out that maybe that number from center line instead of 6.0022 was 6.0012. There's a lot of chasing your tail on those older systems. Most of the machine tools these days, the probe comes down. You set your work offset wherever you want it to be, just like on a a vertical Mm three axis. And the control takes care of everything from there. 
it's it's no different. It is easier to program. I shouldn't say easier, but it, I consider it the same to program a three axis versus five axis. I don't see them as one being any more difficult than the other. And that goes as far as the way we have our NX set up. Mm-hmm. When we open a part, um, it asks us what template do we want to put it in. So if we pick, you know, let's say a five axis uh, machining center, it knows to load those tools into the software. It knows if it's fixture plate and all these, the machine tool itself is going to come in for the simulation. There's no wasted time trying to go and find something. The last thing we do is pick out which lane fixture we're going to hold it with and uh, use a little assembly mate constraint to plop it where we want it to be, and we're off and programming. And are you still running the G-code simulation on all the parts? We do on every part. Do you see conflicts, gotchas occasionally, or how? We do. Um, mostly it's, it's, it could be as simple as like I could save a lot of time. Once you watch it run all the way through and you see how the machine's going to actually rotate and spin from here to here, as opposed to watching um, a simulation that does not use G-code, you just see the tool do some cuts and you see it rotate to the side and do some cuts. It doesn't give you that visualization of, you know what, if I reorder those operations right there, then it's only going to have to rotate twice. Uh, hmm. So I should, you know, little things like that. Um, of course, there's always clearance issues, especially, you know, long right. lease back down something. And uh, we set our stuff up to clear at 30 thou, which is pretty safe because if it clears by a thou, then you're good. But that's also in a testament to our lane stuff. Everything is within a couple tenths on the size of the vice, the width of it, the, how thick the fixture is. So it pre-populates our G10s inside the cam system. So when it hits the floor, the setup guy, he knows where it's going to go. He just has to watch the probe run. Makes sense. Yeah, and also um, to get back onto the how we how we make these things go so smooth is we spend a lot of time up front. Um, our setup sheets are so detailed. They call out the specific holder, the tool by part number, mm-hmm. how long it's sticking out, the projection, the diameter has to be relieved, uh, you know, so length of cut. All that stuff is on these nice, beautiful PDFs along with every tool cutting every um, surface is all on our iPad. So the guy out there flips through the iPad and he's watching it change and be machined as he's scrolling through the photos of every operation. So the software on the iPad, is that something you created or is that uh, um, off no, the shelf? It's actually, no, it's a plugin for NX. Um, it's called NCMatic. Uh, I believe it's a guy out of Switzerland. Hmm. He does an amazing job to extracting information out of NX to make a user-friendly setup sheet that tells you everything you could ever need to know to make that job. So when you make a new hire and you bring someone into the shop, mm-hmm. is it difficult, sort of a two-part question, is it difficult getting them up to speed on your systems? And the other part, which I always found challenging in the shops, was having someone be consistent with the systems, even if they did understand them. Yeah. So the, the most challenging part is having people be consistent. Um, you know, I always like to call it the Patriot way, you know, the Bill Belichick philosophy, um, we do it as a team or, or you're the next man out. And it's not that we're trying to, you know, not give someone a job, but it's very important for everyone to be on the same team. And we all have to work together because if one person doesn't do their job, that part could be a scrap part. 
Right. And it's that simple. That's our philosophy. Um, it's, it's worked for us so far. We, we actually hired a guy last year um, that was a logger. He'd never seen a machine. He and was a, excuse, excuse me, he was a logger? Yeah, cutting logs out, out in the woods, yeah. <laughs> so a little bit different tolerance there. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit different tolerance. Um, and he's one of our best uh, five-axis guys. Huh. It, 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 you never know what you're going to get, what comes through that door, but we just have an open mind, and if you're willing to buy into our proven system, you're going to succeed. I like I like how you've systemized it. It makes a lot of sense, and you're really taking advantage of the technologies that are out there today. Yeah, and, and that even goes as far as our we do on machine probing to you know check some critical mm-hmm. bores. That's not our final inspection. Obviously, everything goes through a CMM, but it's so easy to have that machine come down and tell you the distance from that surface to that surface. And so, why not take advantage of the of the technology that's there? And if it when you're doing the probing at the machine, mm-hmm. are and it's been a little while since I've been able to observe this. Are you getting an alarm if you are out of a certain range, or does it stop and the operator needs to confirm a measurement before proceeding? How does that work? Correct. So what we do, our one weakness is we're not able to program our probes to do inspection with our current cam system. There's guys that know how to do it. I'm not that technically savvy on it. Um, So we do everything with um, a set of macros and a small program that we set up to check a certain amount of bores or features. And the guys on the floor, they know exactly where to put in the information they need to. And what it'll do is it'll come and check something. And if it's greater than... Yeah, and this is all this is all just basic macros. Mm-hmm. And and basically it'll just stop and tell them read this dimension. So they'll go to setting whatever it is, two ten, two I think we use two ten through two twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, they will write down uh, those on our well we also let me back up. We make a pre uh, inspection uh, checklist. So everything that's critical that needs to be measured on the part is on a sheet that's printed with the setup sheet that's bubbled with the print as it all goes to the floor. Now, how we streamline that in the office is, let's say one end mill cuts seven features. Well, we know we only need to check one depth and one diameter because if those two are good, everything right. else will be good because they're tied to each other. Right. So a print that might have 100 dimensions, our in-process inspection sheet might have 12. But if those 12 are good, and we did our stuff on, on the cam system, then we know we have a good part. So that brings us back to the probing. So on that list, it'll have the certain dimensions that they need to verify on the machine. And they're all skilled enough to be able to edit the codes and tweak and navigate over and probe a bore, probe a surface, maybe try and do a true position, all that simple stuff. And uh, they just record it in the little Excel spreadsheet that's printed out, and then we're good to go. Making parts. Making parts. So everything we've talked about up to this point has been making parts. How much of your day do you spend quoting or estimating? I would say on an average day, I probably spend two hours quoting. And, and uh, a lot of that is, has dropped. Um, I was probably up around that maybe three to four hours a day. Mm-hmm. But we, we found a company called Paperless Parts 
We got a call from them back in December and uh, I had the first conversation with them and the mindset and the vision on where they are and where they want to be. I've never signed up for anything like that before in my life, but I trusted them. And, and it was one of the best decisions I've made. Um, at the time, we, were, we experienced a little bit of a slowdown. Mm -hmm. um, we were looking for a way to market ourselves a little bit better, what separates us from another shop. And this seems like a great tool. If I could save time on my quoting and deliver you know, the buyer uh, a higher-end quote, it just seemed win-win. So we signed up with them, and it has been phenomenal. How has it reduced the quoting time? Uh, the number one aspect is we bring in a part. We don't have to open it in our cam system, so we know the exact stock size. We can see all the features that need to be machined. Mm -hmm. It'll tell us how many potential setups we would have if we ran it vertical. But if we're running it you know, on a multi-axis machine, then we know we can adjust that from there. Right. It calculates the cycle time. And one of the biggest things, I always did this in an Excel spreadsheet, I would have to manually enter, okay, I think it'll take 60 minutes to program. I think it's going to be a one-hour setup, runtime 45 minutes, and just go through those. And over time, you realize that all of our quotes all seem to come out about the same price. So <laughs> instead of it being my opinion, it's actually going off facts of, you know, a volume of material being removed and how fast can that be removed in a certain, you know, time frame. Mm -hmm. And it's a fascinating system and we absolutely love it. Um, it knows the cost. We enter all the cost of our out process. Let's say it's plating, grinding, lapping, home. Those are all pre-populated. So all we have to do is check a box and it's added into our quote. And we never miss stuff because it, it's so... I think when it comes in, it asks us three questions. I think what machining center we're going to run it on, uh, the material of the part, outside process, and then quantity. So four questions. And after four questions, 90% of the quote is done. And that's the time when you start looking through it. You look at the part. You look at the price. Analyze the print. Oh, yeah, I got to add in, uh, you know, hard anno. So let me put that in. Those two holes need mass. Check that box you're ready to submit to the customer. It's that fast. So you're getting quotes to the customer faster? Yeah, we get quotes. The honest truth is, is we try and get a quote back in under an hour after we receive it. Under an hour? Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. You Have know, you noticed the faster that you get a quote back, the more likely you are to win the order? Yeah, it's phenomenal. It, those things go hand in hand. And I did some thinking on it, and I thought about it this way. What if I was a buyer and someone said, hey, I need to get these parts done. Here's your action item. I'm going to ask you tomorrow you know, where those parts when we meet at 10 o'clock. If the buyer gets them, gets them sourced, his, his job is done. So he's a happy person. Sure. He can say in yeah. the meeting, I've got them on order. They'll be delivered exactly. on the state. Yeah. And then people are like, well, how'd you do that that fast? And you know, a lot of it is, is our capabilities and how fast we get things done. A lot of it is our software. A lot of it's our technology. And a lot of it is our quoting system. There's a feature where you can offer expedites in the paperless platform. Is that something you take advantage of? It is. And I would say 25% of the time, a buyer will choose the expedite. And so that's better revenue for us, um, and they're willing to pay that expedite. You're not trying to 
It's not a shakedown. Everything's up front. Like they get to, they get to pick when they want their parts and they get to pay what they want to get their parts. It's just a very straightforward upfront system. Did you offer or charge expedites before the paperless we'd, we'd platform? Never, we'd never even thought about it, to be honest with you. So it's been, it's been a good revenue uh, gainer for us. That's for sure. And a good service for the customer because they understand that they can get the parts faster and it's a business decision for them to say, do I want to pay this much more money for the faster delivery or not? Yeah. It's no different than Amazon. Let's say, you know, it's someone's birthday and you forgot their birthday and you hop on Amazon to buy something and you can have it tomorrow for that extra $4. You know, that's a choice you make. Right. Your choice. Yeah. And that's the way it should be. So we've covered a lot of ground here, Damien, and you have such a passion for the manufacturing. What do you, where do you put your passion in your personal life? What do you, what do you like to do for fun? Uh, I enjoy fly fishing. I was a fly fishing guide part-time throughout my life. Uh, I enjoy archery hunting. Um, That's, and I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and that, that takes a lot of my time and passion, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. And to tell you the truth, is, you know, being, being a business owner is, is very demanding, but having that opportunity to have a semi-flexible work life and spend time with your kids and not miss a game and, and you know, go camping on a weekday instead of a weekend, mm-hmm. I wouldn't change that for the world. I know you're working hard, but it's important to have that balance and take the time. So I'm glad to hear you're doing that. Yes, sir. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience today? Um, not that I can think of. This is my first time doing anything like this, but I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, I was thankful to come on and, and be a part of it. Absolutely. Well, where can customers get more information about Impact Manufacturing Group? Uh, the easiest way is online at www.img-mfg.com. Um, it's got everything on there. Um, our website has a plug-in. A uh, customer can just drop a part on there, and they get a quote back in about an hour. Uh, so anyone out there listening, looking for a new quote, even if you're just comparing a quote to another price, we're more than happy to quote it because our quoting system's pretty dialed in right now, so it's, it's not a big deal for us. We don't mind it. That's fantastic. Well, Damien, I'm really glad we had you on today. I appreciate you sharing the details of your journey, and I really love your entrepreneurial spirit. I'm inspired by your desire to constantly learn, and technology is so positively changing custom manufacturing. Some of the ways that you're applying the modular tooling I was not familiar with, so if that can help another shop, reduce their cycle times, improve their quality. I think that we've got a wind under our belt today and certainly your customers are, are winning every day when they're working with you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, we wouldn't be here without our customers. So we thank them every day and anything we can do to help them out is, is, is a working relationship that we enjoy. Yeah. Well, again, thank you very much, Damien. This wraps another episode of the job shop show. Thanks for listening. Keep those spindles turning. All right. Thank you, Jay.